0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Come and grab a seat, please. They'll look at me and look away. I'm I'm eyeballing them. We're going to start in just a moment. While they're coming through, why don't you say hello to the person next to you if you haven't already done so. Introduce yourself. Say, it's lovely being in this big glass atrium we're in. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, um, I don't know if you're a film fan at all, I love films, I watched films growing up watching films, still like watching films now, very exciting, I, I noticed on the floor there, there is a... Why we've got a rom-com in here, I don't know. But they're not my favourite type of films, but there's one down there. I like kind of the action films, exciting films, films with suspense. And I remember reflecting back growing up, one of those films that I watched a lot of growing up, because it seemed to be on the TV a lot, and this was back in the days, in the dark ages, when you just had to watch what was on the telly. You couldn't choose anything. was the 1963 film, The Great Escape. Who's seen that one? Famous, I love this film. What's in the Second World War in a prisoner of war camp, um, where a bunch of Allied prisoners were there, and the, uh, the the Germans were kind of trying to keep them in. And if you follow the film, it particularly had it basically had the worst prisoners in the sense of they kept trying to escape. So they put them all together in this super prison, and they were going to guard them in. And if you've seen the film, it's got a lot of famous people in it. Steve McQueen, who's in it. And it's got James Garner and James Coburn and Donald Pleasance and Richard Attenborough and David McCallum. All these famous actors from yesteryear, they were all in it. But their plan was to escape, hence the name of um, the film. And it was quite a daring one. They had to build tunnels. And obviously this was based on a true story as well, so it kind of makes it even more exciting. And they named the three tunnels. What were the three tunnels called? Remember? Tom, Dick, and Harry with the three tunnels that they built, and they were trying to tunnel out, and there was a bit where they were talking, I think it was Richard Attenborough who was the big ex, he was head of the escape committee, and he was trying to, to get them ready to, for this big escape they were going to do, and he was talking to Steve McQueen's character, and he said, we're going to break out of this place, and uh, Steve McQueen's character says, how are we going how, how to try and break out, you know, you know, four, five, how are we going to get out, and he says, what do he say, he says, two hundred and fifty. And what does Steve McQueen's character say? 250! Nothing had been done. It was a daring plan. They were going to try and break out most of the camp under the wire through these tunnels. But there are setbacks on the way. One of the tunnels is discovered by the guards as they, they pull the coffee. And you know, oh, they, they, and they discover one of the tunnels and they're set back. And they're like, oh no, what do we do? But we've got two other tunnels. We're doing three. So we, we, they, they, they get on with the other tunnel. And they have to, how do they have to deal with all the mud that comes out of the tunnel? Because once you're digging out the tunnel, what do you do with the mud? So what do they do? They put it down their trousers, don't they? And they walk around the yard and they, they're pulling the strings in their pockets and the, the mud is coming down their shoes and they're walking around like this and just doing it in and they're kind of trying to do all these creative ways and they've got the guys, the Tunnel Kings. Who is it? Charles Bronson's one of the Tunnel Kings. He's there and he's building the tunnel and eventually comes to break out and they manage to get a bunch of guys out and then all the kind of palaver of trying to catch them and then the classic ending is when Steve McQueen is on his bike and what's he trying to do? He's trying to jump... The frontier, I think it's into Switzerland, because Switzerland was neutral, He's trying to jump the frontier, and it doesn't work. And many of them were rounded up, but some escaped. I think two or three actually managed to kind of break to freedom. So it's all about this daring plan, and was it going to kind of come to fruition? And what we've got, if we come back to the book of Ruth, what we're looking at, there's a daring plan is put in action. It's not escape from a prison of war camp, but it's still a daring plan nonetheless. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go to Ruth chapter 3. We're kind of halfway through the book of Ruth now in our summer sermon series. If you've missed any of them, you can just go on our website, catch up. We looked at chapter 1. We did two weeks in chapter 2, just kind of outlining this story. And we found out the story in the book of Ruth is a story of um, God's love for his people. And on the surface, it's a love story between Boaz... And uh, a foreign woman, a Moabite named Ruth, and a mother-in-law, and is also involved in this. And we see that if you've read the whole story, which I encourage you to do, you see at the end they get together. And it can see on the surface like this human love story. But actually behind it, it's a divine love story. It's God's love for his people and the continuation of his line that will one day manifest itself in David, the greatest king of Israel, and then beyond that... Jesus, the King of Kings, and about how God is working through it. And what we find is we've got ordinary people in ordinary situations, and God is just working through their life by his providence. It's a book that doesn't have miracles, doesn't have angels coming down, doesn't have seas parting or anything kind of, whoa, like that. It's just God's hand working through circumstances. And we saw in chapter 1, many of those circumstances were very difficult. There was death, death. And famine and just stuff going on. But yet, yeah, even in those tough times, God is working and bringing his purposes out. And what we got is we get to um, chapter 3. We've met Naomi. We've met Ruth. Tragedy in their life. We've met Boaz, who he describes as a worthy man. He was a very godly man, upright man. So he's come on the scene. Um, and Ruth and Boaz have kind of met, sort of uh, coincidence, but the Bible is the providence of God. They happen to come along. Boaz has showed incredible kindness, and the theme of God's kindness runs through the book. There's that Hebrew word hesed about the loving kindness of God, which runs through the entire book, and Boaz has demonstrated that towards Ruth and her mother, and non Naomi, blessing them, and so they've been set up um, for that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in chapter 3 and read the next section of the story. It will appear up there if you can read it, but I'm going to read it from here. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as his mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I." Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before um, one could recognize another. He said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law and said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then he told her that the mat- what the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. Okay, big idea. In following the purpose of God in our lives, there is absolutely no substitute for godly character. In following the purpose of God in our life, there is no substitute for godly character. One thing we just need to talk about before we get into the passage is this idea of the Redeemer. It's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, as kind of Boaz is a kind of close relative of the Dez husband of Naomi, Elimelech, who kind of, he appeared and died right at the beginning of chapter 1. And it's again mentioned in chapter 2, sorry, verse 20, verse 1 and verse 20, and also now. What's this whole thing about the Redeemer? Well, the Redeemer just means to buy back, Buy back from slavery, it's, referred to, it's used to refer to God, it's also used to refer to Christ. But it also it was, it has its basis in the Mosaic law. And when God um, brought the people out of Egypt and he created this new nation, this new family, his people, he put certain stimulations in the law to cover a couple of things. One was the continuation of family lines. And the other one was the keeping the promised land, the inheritance that he had given them. If we read the book of Joshua, which we're going to start in September, it talks about taking that land that God had promised to Abraham. And how do we keep the land within the families to which is allotted? All right. And so he put some stipulations in the law. And the, when they talked about family, we talk about, tend to talk about family of mum, dad, kids, 2.4 children. That's our very sort of small one. In this context, it's much broader. Family is a lot wider with aunties, uncles, brothers, sisters. It's a wider thing. And within the Mosaic law, if someone, one of your family, kind of fell on hard times, it was expected to you to help them out. Not just say, well, that's your problem. Actually, you had a a responsibility there. And there were several ways it came out in the law. It was to basically ensure that that um, that the land never passed out a particular family group. The land you allotted was yours, and it doesn't, it doesn't ever go out of your group. It was also to maintain the freedom of anyone within the clan. If someone fell into poverty or into slavery because of their poverty, the, the family was then responsible to buy them out of slavery and bring them back to the land that was theirs to keep it going so they wouldn't be lost is the, the, the responsibility. And the idea was that it was God's family, the land was on trust, and he had given it to that people, and actually they were to keep it within the family line. So there were certain laws been down there with even laws in actually protecting the family. If someone, one of your family was murdered, it was actually responsible for you to go and find the perpetrator and actually bring them to justice and those kind of things that were happening. And so you've got this law about the redeemers within the family and then you get in Deuteronomy 25, you get something called the Leverite Law, which was for the clan of Levi regarding marriage. And the idea was that if you got married and the husband died with no children, the brother of the dead husband would step in to continue the family line. So the family name wasn't blotted out. So he would have to marry the widow of his dead brother. Obviously, this is really important when you're picking a wife at that point, that your brothers are on board as well, because you never know what's going to happen in that situation. But that was the law of the time. And it was basically because if someone dies without children, there's nothing to continue the family, nothing to take the land. And so actually it's important to continue the family line, which is a big overriding theme of Ruth, that actually, what do neither Ruth or Naomi have? Children. Naomi's have died without any more. And Ruth was married for 10 years, didn't have any children. So there's there's nothing there. And so you have this idea of the Redeemer. Now there's nothing in the text that says either Boaz or Naomi or Ruth were part of the clan of Levi, tribe of Levi, but there was a spirit of the law that become a custom that this is what would happen. Someone died, the brother would step in to continue the family line. And we found out that Boaz is what? He is one of he's a close family relative of Elimelech, the dead husband. So he fits this category. He is one of these redeemers. He's one of these people who could fulfil this. And the author has been hinting at this up till now. Kind of we've said he's seen he's a worthy man. Oh, he's a close relative. Uh uh-huh. alright. And then it's actually no, he's one of our redeemers. He fits this bill, and what a good guy he is. He's not a rascal. He's not someone off that you think, well, dodgy. Everything he's done thus far has proved himself to be worthy. He shows the loving kindness of God, particularly to Ruth, and then in turn to Naomi as well. And so it's like all this stuff is set up for what's going to happen now. So if we go to the passage, Naomi comes up with a plan. And if you look at the beginning of the passage, she basically shows in a rhetorical question, I'm responsible for you, daughter-in-law. And what good mother-in-law would just kind of leave you in this situation? I've got to do something about it. I need to find... She uses this word rest. Rest is used in chapter 1 in referring when she prays for Naomi. And And rest basically means husband and children and tranquility and kind of security that comes with it. So she's basically saying, I should seek rest for you. What does that mean? need to get your husband. Need you to get you that security that came in that culture of husband and land and income and those kind of things. So that's what she said. She's got to do, and it's her due to her mother-in-law with her widowed daughter-in-law to do something about it. So what does she do? She works out. Okay, we've got Boaz. He's one of our relatives. He fits this category of redeemer. We also know he's a really good guy. So actually, I'm putting two and two together. You can see where how the mother-in-law's. Um, kind of uh, things are wearing. And so she says, right? Boaz is going to be out winnowing at the threshing floor. It's end of harvest. We had six or seven weeks of harvest. I've kind of kind of glossed over the end of chapter two. Pff, they've been doing that. So he's going to be winnowing out all the harvest they've got. Where they take it to the threshing floor and they throw it up in the air to separate the heavy grain, which would fall to the ground, and the stalk and the sort of chaff would get blown away by the wind, and they'd gather up the grain. He's obviously doing that, the hard work at the end of the harvest to kind of get. The grain that can be used. He's going to be out doing there and it's coming to the end of that time. So what does she say uh, what does she say to Naomi? She basically says, Sort yourself out, love. Take a bath, anoint yourself with perfume. There was no deodorant at the time. Just saying. So warm climate, Middle Eastern climate, would have been fruity, especially if you're working. So to have a bath, anoint yourself, get your Coke, because it would have been, if you're going out at night, it would have been cold at that night. Um, and this, what's kind of it's signifying here is the end of her mourning period. She would have been in mourning because of the loss of her husband when she travelled back from Moab. And sort of that's where she, she would have been a widow. And kind of a, a mum saying, right, you've, you've mourned, your husband's gone, we need to now look to the future and what's going to go on there. And Ruth would have been in mourning for that, same with Naomi. He said, right, go out to the place where Boaz is, Okay, where he's going to spend the night. And what you are to do when you're there is you're to go and lie at his feet. We'll deal with that a bit more later on and what that means. And once that's happened he's worked out you're there, you're then to wait for instructions from him to do that, to do what to do. And so that's the plan. That's the kind of like, Great escape type thing. This is what, what's going to happen. That's what you doing do. Now, if we sit there and think about this, there are some potentials for stuff to go wrong here when you think about what's going to happen. It could be possible that Boaz could take her for a prostitute. It wouldn't be uncommon at that time with the men out of town doing the grain, getting everything ready, and then having a kind of a meal to finish it all. We celebrate with eating and drinking And they're all alone. You think, aye, aye, it's not the best environment that the people from around about who were part of that trade could go out there and try their their luck with these guys. And so if Ruth is going out there, she could have kind of been, well, you're part of that. That's what you're trying to do. So she could that. And then Boaz could take advantage of her. Girl turns up, tries to kind of lie under your blanket, looking and smelling like she does. He'd be thinking, wow, that was easy. You know, didn't even have to make much effort. And it's come to me. It could be she could try that. He could assume she's a prostitute, but then he could shame her and say, what on earth do you think you're doing? Don't you dare come to me like that You know, and and send her away. Or he could recognize and kind of understand where this is going. So there's potential for failure. And the big question we get to at this point in the story is, how is Boaz going to react? The author's already set it up because what do we know about Boaz? He's a good guy. He's a worthy man. So we're kind of hoping for that thing. So let's see what actually happens. We've got the plan. What about the implementation of the plan? Ruth says she's going to do it. And as we begin the next section, that's what she does. Does everything her mother-in-law commands. All the mother-in-laws say amen. Their daughter-in-laws just follow their their, their instructions. And when she goes down there, she must have snuck up. They're obviously eating, having a drink, kind of after the, the hard work is done. And then they lay down... Why were the guys out there? Probably to protect it from thieves, bandits. It was a dark time, the time that the end of the judges there, there would be people out trying to steal it, so the guy, they would have been there to just protect their harvest. No good doing all that hard work and someone whipping it right at the end. So that's why they were out there. So she observes it and she says she came softly. She snuck in, cat-like. And she uncovered his feet and lay down. Okay, and then it says, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Can you, un- can you understand what that's like? Just He's gone to sleep, and then, whoa, there's someone there in my bed. And he turned over, and he asked the obvious question. Who are you? What? Huh? Um, and uh, this woman laid his feet. He's got that word, behold, which was used when he kind of came on the scene. It's kind of a sudden word. So he's obviously got a startle. When I went to bed, there wasn't anyone there. There is now someone there. Who are you? And she, replies, she um, replies, I am Ruth, your servant. So it's a, it's a position of deference. She identifies herself, but actually, I'm your servant. I'm, he's the master. He's the one with the money. He's the one who had the workers. He's the one who owned the land. She was the poor foreigner. So he comes there. But then she suddenly turns the tables. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Effectively, what she's doing. Now, bearing in mind, she's a servant. He's the master. She's uninvited on his turf. She's a foreigner, he's the native, and plus he's the man, she's the woman. So she's not really in a position to be making demands of this guy. Plus she snuck into his at his feet in his bed. And she basically says this thing, spread your wings over me, which is actually, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, it's what Boaz prayed for her and acknowledged her about that she had gone and had gone under the wings of the God of Israel. Because remember, she was a foreigner. So she was from Moab. They served false gods there that did horrible things and worshiped children and sacrifice and stuff. But she had, in chapter one, she had actually said, No, I will go where you go. My God will be your God. She now follows the God of Israel. Okay? And so she's understanding their culture. And he had prayed for them and says, Well, you've taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, like a, a mama hen and chicks kind of gathering under there for safety. And, and Boaz had kind of acknowledged that in her. And now she now turns around and said, actually spread your wings over me. You prayed kind of it for God. I want you now to do it. And what is she's basically saying, it's a euphemism for marriage. She's basically saying, I'm here. I want you to marry me. I want you to be the one to take responsibility for me. And the fact is you're my redeemer. You're one of those relatives Kind of who can do that, it's kind of loaded with meaning. And what we've got is from Boaz being a bit like, whoa, what are you doing here? To her saying, right, look at me. I need you to do this for me. So it's quite a forthright thing from a young woman to an older gentleman. And she she's obviously shows a, an understanding of Israelite custom, probably from Naomi, that actually this is, what, this is what happens. You need to kind of fulfill your rights to me. And what does Boaz says? We've got another one of those, uh oh, what's gonna happen? If it was an episode of EastEnders, it would go do 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 doo at that point and it would break. And you're like, what's gonna what, how's he gonna respond? Thankfully, we don't have to wait till next week. And he says, Wonderfully, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. So we have got again that term of affection for her, kindness. It says, you have made this last kindness. That word kindness there is that word has said again the loving kindness of God. She is, examined, she is displaying something of God by coming to him, by acknowledging him as an older gentleman and actually saying, I want you to be this redeemer for me. And she's saying, come and, and, and take care of me, take care of me and my family in this. And what does he do? He responds to her. He says, he says, have no fear about that because she says, you are a worthy woman. The same word used to describe him has been given back to her and he said actually others talk about you and we've seen Ruth's character through this story how she has shown exemplary character from the from chapter one again and again he said actually I acknowledge that you're a worthy woman um, in this situation and she says that um, you haven't gone after other men bear in mind she was young and um, she was without a husband she could have gone kind of from as soon as she arrived in Bethlehem I need to go find myself a husband and gone after anyone. He said, even rich or poor, you could have just gone and found someone to sort you out. She didn't. What did she do? She sought to take care of her mother-in-law. She's been working hard in the harvest for week, day after day after day after day after day, long days, backbreaking days to, to, to provide. And she says, you're a worthy, you're a woman of honor as well. And so everything's like looking good here. Okay, you're good, I'm good. We're one of these relatives. We can work this thing out, but... Like all good romantic comedies, there is another complication. What is the complication? There's another redeemer. A closer relative. We know nothing about this individual. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? What's going to happen? What we're thinking is, no, we want it to be Boaz. We want it to be Ruth. We want it to be happily ever after. We want That's the story. That's what we been geared up for. But he says, actually, no, there's another one. And he, has, he might want to play his role. He says, true, I'm the redeemer, but actually there's one closer <laughs> One nearer than I. But he says, remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem it, then I will do it as the Lord lives. Lie down tomorrow. So what we've got is a good resolution here. It's either, if it's not me, Boaz says, if it's not this guy, it will be me. Someone's going to redeem me. You're going to have that security, that rest, that continuation of the line. You'll be brought into family. And if it's not this other chap, it will be me. So we're looking up. Things are going, but we have to deal with this convocation, which we'll deal in a few weeks' time. It says, so she lay down with her feet until morning, and she rose early before anyone could recognize her, didn't want to bring any unnecessary shame on, like, what were you doing there? Why were you overnight? What's all that gone about? And uh, He said, don't let it be known. But he says, but bring your garment. And again, this blessing, which you look particularly at last week, he gave her more, six measures of barley. We don't know quite how much that is, but actually, again, another blessing to, that would go back um, to uh, Naomi in the city. Um, a substantial gift. And so we've got the final sort of results of everything that happened. She comes back to her mother-in-law and obviously, rightly, what's the first question the mother-in-law asks? How'd it go? <laughs> what happened? She's probably been fretting all night, you know, sending your daughter in out into the dark and it would have been proper dark. It wouldn't have been like our dark with all our streetlights. It would have been proper dark out there. With all these guys, anything could have happened. And so she says, what's happened? He said, he's given me these six measures of barley um, and... He's going to try and go through the process to redeem us and bring us into family with him. And uh, the, 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 um, Naomi replies, kind of, wait, my daughter, and we'll see how the matter turns out. Kind of, It's in the hands of God in there. The gift probably would have been almost like a, a betrothal gift that he would have given there, almost a bribe price to the family for marrying Ruth. That's why it went back to Naomi in that. But Naomi expresses a great confidence in what is going to happen in that story. And then we'll leave it there. We don't know what's going to happen next. Well, we do if you've read the story. But t- a couple of weeks' time, we'll look at how this works out and what happens with Boaz. So a couple of things I just want to highlight and then we'll we'll try and earth this. Three things. First one, Naomi's hope. Now there's divided opinion on whether the advice Naomi gave to Ruth was good or bad. Some commentators say, oh my goodness, that was the worst advice ever, just sending your daughter out. Others say that it was really good and actually it helped kind of move it along. Others say God used Naomi's bad advice for good and, and there's all decision. But what we can learn... From this situation, was one, Naomi had a plan. She was not passive in the face of l- their long term situation, which for both Naomi and Ruth, their long term situation was bleak. It was bleak. It was a life of poverty. And if they hadn't found someone like Boaz or something like that, both. They were just they were left destitute and starvation was a very real issue. And she says, Nope, I'm not going to have this situation. I want to aim to secure a godly husband for my daughter in law to preserve the family, preserve the inheritance, preserve the family life. The second thing she had was hope. Great hope. Now if we go back to chapter one, remember, what did not what didn't Naomi have? Hope. She had none. What did she, she even changed her name, didn't she? It was that bad. She had experienced the bereavement of her husband plus her two sons. Terrible tragedy. And when they returned to Bethlehem, what did she say? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She even said, I went away full. I've come back empty. I just, I kind of, I've got nothing. Just call, me, just call me bitter as a constant reminder of, kind of how life has gone. But we've seen a reversal through chapter 2 over that period of actually the hand of God working in her life and her seeing God's sovereign hand working on the situations that he will work them out for his good. They, they came back God's providence at harvest time. Ruth happened on Boaz's field, we saw at the beginning of chapter two, kind of what was that about? That was the hand of God working there. We've, we find out that Boaz is a man of great godly character, so going to his field to glean, collect up the kind of the, the, the harvest there from the corners for the poor, actually worked out really well, because he was a good guy, and let her. didn't chase her off, nothing bad happened to her, which could have happened. We also find here, he showed particular kindness and blessing to her, Ruth, and in turn, Naomi. So great stuff. And it's shown such incredible passion to both of them. And so Naomi, in hope, had a plan. Hopeless people are paralyzed. When you're hopeless, you almost you can't do anything. can't get out of bed in the morning. just no hope, nothing. Naomi suddenly has a restored hope. And for us as believers, the question comes, where is our hope? Where is your hope? And when I talk about hope, we can talk about a worldly hope which is not really based on much, I can hope my ticket comes up in the lottery, assuming I play it, one in what, 14 million, I hope I'm going to win, we can hope our favourite sports team does well, our favourite sports person, we're going to win, we're going to do this, you know, everything's going to happen, we hope this is our year, we're going to win the cup, we're going to get promoted, let's hope Villa get promoted, you know. but that's not any real hope, is it? Let's be honest. But that's see, but as Christians, our hope isn't like that. Our hope is based on a certainty. Something weird and strong in the sovereign hand of God, the goodness and grace of God. We have our hope on Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. That he was God the Son, He came to earth, He was born of a virgin, He lived the perfect life. He proclaimed the gospel, He, he healed the sick. He then died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. He then rose bodily from death commissioned his church to go out and proclaim the good news, returned to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit with us, and one day we will see him face to face when he returns to judge the living and the dead. That is a certain hope that we have. And we live and we, we build our life on that. And if we trust in that, that should spur us into action. That should, should motivate us in what we do. Because we built on something solid. And if we fail, it doesn't matter because God's bigger than that. God will cope with that. So my question is, are we living and trusting in that hope? Are you building your life on that? Is that what motivates you to move forward? If you're not a believer here, we'd love to talk to you about what that hope means and introduce you to Jesus, who is the living hope, the one that will never disappoint, never let down. If you're a believer here, what are you building your life on? What are you making your decisions based on? Is it on God, his plan, his purposes? and where everything in history is heading, to one day we will stand before him, the living and the dead, and we will all be judged by him. What are you building your hope on? The next one, Ruth's righteousness. She tells Boaz why she's come, very upfront, takes the initiative. She follows Naomi's advice that's been given us. You're the one who can kind of redeem our inheritance. You're the one who can stop our family name being lost. You know, basically saying, I want to be your wife is effectively what she's saying to her. She's responding to what Boaz has said earlier. But she's in a real position there where she could use lots of different means to get that. She's gone to him. He's, had a, he's eaten well. He's had a drink. We, don't, we know his character is good, so he's probably not drunk, but he's probably had a couple of drinks. So things will be a lot easier there. It's dark. It's out of town in the fields away where you know people won't know about it, what's going on. She's looking good. bathed, anointed with perfume. So everything is going away. If you imagine it was a film, there would be a string quartet in the background, playing something seductive and nice and kind of all that. And the question is, how is Ruth going to respond? Because there are ways and means of motivating men into certain courses of action that women have. They have certain skills and assets at their disposal that they can use to get men to do what they want. Don't all look at me blankly. You all know exactly what I mean when I'm talking about this. And so, no, I didn't. know. no. Yes, they do. And so Ruth comes there, and she has all that at her disposal. So she could use that to her advantage. But what does she do? She just comes flat out, asks it, and leaves it with him said, so this is what we want, this is why we're here, this is what we think is right before God. She doesn't give in to the compromise, she doesn't try and seduce him, she doesn't try to manipulate him, use her feminine wires on him, none of that. None of that whatsoever. She keeps her right standing with God through that whole process. And our question for us today is something to earth in our lives. As believers, are we willing to keep our right standing with God above what we may want? She wasn't going to trick him into, you know, trap him into marriage by doing something with him, getting pregnant by him or something. She said no. And our question is today what are you facing? What are you pursuing in God? What do you want in your workplace, in your family, in your life? And are you willing to keep your right standing with God as you pursue that? Even in the face of rejection, even in the face of failure, even in the face of difficult circumstances. Because Ruth left that situation with her. Integrity intact. And standing before God intact, enough had nothing to repent of in what she'd done. But actually, for us, are we willing to do that? Are we doing that? What are you facing at the moment? The easy one in this, if you know you're thinking about a situation, it's probably the reason God wants, you, God wants to do something with it. In the worship, maybe you need to do some business with him. But if you know there's something there right now, make your uh, peace with God. Repent from things you're going to do. If there's temptation in front of you, deal with it now. Tell someone. Confess it. Last one. Boaz is integrity. Boaz is integrity. Boaz, I think it's an older gentleman. He's presented with a beautiful, sweet-smelling, younger woman who has come to him in the night. If you're in his position, Christmas is kind of where you are. You're thinking, wow, this is amazing. Look at this. He could take advantage of her very easily in that situation. Apparently, the commentators say it wasn't uncommon for prostitutes to go out in the field and um, ply their trade there. So it's kind of it wasn't out of the ordinary, out of the question in that sense. Ruth would have been very vulnerable, even in what she's sharing, even when he says she says, "Actually, I want us to be connected." He could have he could have used that to his advantage and said, "Ah, oh, well, if you want that, you need to you know you need to do something for me in this situation." But how does Boaz? act in line with his character up till then he has shown integrity he is described as a worthy man he, has, he will not kind of give in to that temptation and he responds with integrity he does. so he leaves the situation with his integrity intact as well I read through one of the commentaries I was doing as I was preparing this it's, it, this line stuck out for me so I read it down it says don't mistake temptation for opportunity don't mistake temptation for opportunity Which is exactly what Boaz could have done. He was there, he was like, Well God must want it to happen because look at what's come through But actually it would have been wrong, it would have been sinful and he didn't. And actually if we're thinking about the big story of Ruth and all that God wants to do, actually the character of the individuals through it is key to making it happen. The character of Ruth, the character of Naomi, the character of Boaz is key for God's plans and purposes in moving his people forward. And they've displayed it all through it. And so what I want to finish with last thing is kind of just a few guidance on this whole idea of how do we develop a godly character? Because that's what these guys displayed. How do we go about developing a godly character? It's important. It's what, it's, it's what the, the story is kind of highlighting to us in doing this in terms of the purposes and plans of God. How do we go about doing it? Four things. You can't read I'll tell you. I can't read those. First one. The good news, it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. It's not something... We live in an instant culture, don't we? We want it now. Microwave it, fast food, Amazon Prime delivery that comes within 24 hours. I got across the other day because it took 24 hours for my thing to arrive. You think, what? You know, do I have to wait a whole day to get that? You know, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? But we're like, Amazon want drones now, don't they? To drop it to your house, and they have this system where you can do it in two hours. It's just ridiculous. We want everything. We breed on this culture. We want it quick fix. We want it now. We want it now. We want it now. Godly character doesn't work like that. It works. It's a lifelong process that's gradual and gradual. I mean, the nearest thing I can apply it to is my two kids. Um, they're seven and five at the moment. But do you know what? I've never seen them grow. They just. I keep looking around, and they're bigger than when they were. We measured one the other day. I think it was Ash, and it was. It was an inch in six months. It'd grown an inch in six months. You're like, when did that happen? You know, just like, whoa. They grow and they're getting bigger and bigger, but you don't actually see it. I swear it happens at night. You know, they just, they lie down and they expand. But they just keep growing like that and they're going to just keep growing. And it's bit by bit, little by little. There's no shortcuts. It's something we just have to bed in for life. The second thing, it's based on scripture and prayer you cannot get around this guys we bang on about this so much daily reading of your bible and prayer building that in is what helps build your godly character because as we read the word of god we are transformed by it it says all scripture is what useful for teaching rebuking correcting training correcting and training in righteousness as we learn from the word of god obviously we have this context here where it's public teaching but actually in our own personal life we read God's word we we think about it it affects us the things we need to repent of things we learn about God things we learn about ourselves in relation to God things we learn about other people how we love and serve and care for others all these things go into gradually honing us and as we listen to God as we respond to his word when he says you don't do this you do do this how we deal with others how we knock up to one another in life all that stuff is growing us as believers, and there is absolutely no substitute for that, that we are meant to be men and women of the word and prayer, that we're in the Bible and we're praying um, uh, to God. The next one, wise counsel. We walk alongside other believers, and these overlap, obviously, when you're reading the Bible, I don't get that, you go and ask someone about it, how do we work these things through? Actually, as we listen to others, and we work things through with others, and we learn from others. It's why it's community is so important for the believers uh, and people of God. There's hundreds of references through the New Testament where it talks about one another and each other, love one another, care for one another, serve one another. All these things come up again and again and again, pray for one another, spur one another on, correct one another. And that is all done in the context of community. And so, you need to be around other believers. You can't do this on your own. You can't do it in isolation over there. I need to be with other people and living lives with them and learning and growing from them, which is why our life groups, I've already mentioned, are so important to us that you're in a community of believers that you're just learning from them and doing life together. And God usually bumps you up against people and rubs off the raw edges as you do that. Every life group has an annoying person in it. Well done. You've just got to get on with them because that's what it is. If there's no annoying person in your life group, it's you. You know. Get you know. If you look around and think, do you know what? I love all of them. They're really good people. You're the annoying one, that sort of thing. And they're putting up with you and all your weird habits and things like that. Okay, and that's just life. And that's what I mean. That's the church. I love the church for that, that we're also different and different backgrounds, different cultures, and all this thing, we come together and we just we have the most important thing in common, which is Jesus. But we we do life together and God trains us through that. As we study the word together and we pray together and we we go forward together, that's how we grow in godly character. Last one. We win today's battles. How do you win the big battles that come? It's because you've won all the small ones along the way. The ones you win today will gear you up for the big ones that come in the future the big things, the big tests of integrity, the big tests of kind of commitment and faith. And so whatever you're facing right now, today, win that one. Fight that one. Don't worry about the future and what's, you know, what's coming in the past. But if you compromise today, you're more likely to compromise later. You're more likely to compromise in the future. You keep fighting, working your day. You get up, you read your Bible today, you pray today, you go into the day, you deal with what the day has Worrying if you fail, because we all do at certain times. That's okay. We have one John one eight and nine, and if we deceive ourselves, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful to trust. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we mistake, we've always got the cross to go back to. Deal with it. Ask Holy Spirit to be with us. Move forward. Seek repentance. Confess it. Walk along with other people, we can do that. But we're to fight the battles we've got today fight the ones we know what's, you, what's God face you today what have you just had in the last few days that kind of you think man that's kind of come up against an integrity thing a compromise thing uh, a courage and boldness thing where I actually have to step out and say something and I don't know what's going to happen what's going to come at me as a result what about we've done in the last few weeks we did that um, what's in your wallet series it was five weeks on money and possessions kind of hitting one of the idols of our age if we use that as an example that's just one thing we sort of tackled as a church money how we deal with this my question is, well, kind of how did you react to that as a church? What did you do in response to that? Because if we're trying to develop godly character, it obviously involves our money, many other things, but it involves our money and our possessions. I left at the end of the series and I said to you guys, you need to have a conversation with someone. If you're married, it would be with your spouse. If you're not, you find a godly friend or someone you know, a life group leader or someone you know. Have a conversation about your money, how you handle money, how you're dealing with money, what God says about money, what you need to change, what God's saying about what you should be giving in terms of into the, the local church you're a part of? What do you do with your offerings? All these other things. Have you had that? Because that's all about developing godly character. That's winning the battle at that point. Something else will come up in the future. Have you had those conversations? Have you talked to someone else about it and sought wise counsel? Have you gone back to the scriptures that we preached to and read them for yourself and thought, what is God saying about money and possessions in my life? What do I need to take away? What do I need to repent on? What do I need to start doing? What do I need to affirm that I am doing? I think that's great. I keep on with that. What do I need to realign? Yeah, that's today's battles. Even today, with the offering we took, is a small battle for today. For me, at that moment, I open my checkbook. There's no checks in it. Wonderful. I don't have to give today. I've been let off the hook. Thank you, Lord. The Lord has spoken. When actually, we talked about it, we prayed about it, we knew what we were going to give. I had to get an envelope out of my IAU, shove it in. But there's my small battle for today. No one would have known. The pastor didn't give. No one had known. You can get away with these things. But actually, you fight the battles. You fight them every day. And that's just one example. And there'll be other things going on in your life that I don't know about. Udras of things and all sorts of areas that I can't comprehend. But what are they? What are your battles a day that you need to fight to develop godly character? Let's finish. Do you want to stand? Can the band come up? I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship a bit and see what God says before we finish. May you want to just close your eyes? I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the examples we've seen there, of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. I want to thank you for their character that is displayed to us in the face of hugely difficult circumstances they were facing. Lord, I want to thank you for their example. I want to thank you that they sow something of your said, your loving kindness and compassion to one another. Lord, display in them. Lord, I pray for us as a people that we would display that too in our lives, that your godly character would grow in us and that would be shown to one another, that would be shown to our families and our friends and to a watching world who has all sorts of thoughts about the church and stuff. Lord God, I pray pray for the battles we're fighting today, Lord. I ask you to give us grace to stand firm in them. Lord, for where we've mucked up and made mistakes, Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness that is available to each of us who asks. If you know that's you, just deal with it now with God. Just confess it, ask forgiveness, receive that, move on. Christ's blood covers it all. Lord, we pray for us as a church that we would grow day by day, week by week, following you, reading your word, praying, being filled with the Spirit, Loving you, going after you. Lord God, we thank you for the men and women you've put around us, that is this church, and what you've done here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask as we kind of worship now, we leave this place, God, we pray for your grace upon us, Lord Jesus, that we would grow day by day, week by week, more and more like you, Lord Jesus. That's our desire, Lord God. And God's people said,